And again, welcome to this evening sermon series on Romans. And I'm going to ask you to join with me in a brief word of prayer. O Lord, you have given us your word for a light to shine upon our path. Grant us so to meditate on that word and to follow its teaching that we may find in it the light that shines more and more until the perfect day through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Scripture reading for tonight is from the first chapter of Romans, verses 18 through 32. Listen to the word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made... So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we have already learned in this series, Paul has written this letter for the purpose of preaching the gospel to all people, whatever their previous religious background, Jew or Greek, and whatever their social class or origin, Greek or barbarian, as one would say. Paul loves the gospel, and he feels compelled to share it with others. It is truly, as his translation says, good news. And so, let us ask why the news is good. 
Well, one important reason why it is good is because it promises a way out of the overall human predicament, which is our bondage to sin, and the judgment and condemnation that is God's answer to sin. In this section of the letter, Paul begins his description of mankind's miserable state. There has been some dispute as to whether verses 18 through 32 concern mostly the Gentile population, or if Jew and Gentile alike are those he is referring to here. In other words, he's talking about mankind in general. Now, there are good biblical scholars who have come down on either side of that question, but I personally find the view that Paul is referring here primarily to the Gentiles to be the more convincing. And one biblical scholar I have a lot of respect for, Douglas Moo, sets out two reasons for this view. And he says, first, the passage is reminiscent of Jewish apologetic arguments in which Gentile idolatry was derided, and the moral sins of the Gentile world were tied to that idolatry. Second, the knowledge of God rejected by those depicted in 1, 18 through 32, comes solely through natural revelation, the evidences of God in creation, and perhaps the conscience. The situation with Jews is, of course, wholly different, for Paul holds them responsible for the special revelation they have been given in the law. And so that's how I'm going to approach this passage. It may well have some applicability towards the Jewish believers in Jesus, but it is primarily directed towards the Gentiles who were coming to faith in Christ. Paul is saying that the revelation of God's righteousness through the gospel is necessary because, as he writes, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, the use of the words from heaven is a possible reference to what is called the Sodom tradition. And that's based, of course, on the Genesis account of the wicked and godless city of Sodom being destroyed by fire from heaven. And this tradition continued in Jewish oral literature, and so it would have been very familiar to Paul, and it would have been familiar to any Jewish Christian, and it would have even been familiar to, say, unlettered Gentiles who were God-fearers and they sat in the synagogues and they listened to the teachings. They had not become Jews because they did not undergo the rite of circumcision, and yet they still accepted the God of Abraham. So his audience would have known what he was referring to. And that terrible image of the wrath of God coming down as fire from heaven is one that is going to grip anyone who hears the description now, one commentator, another commentator, not Douglas Moo, refers, or he offers this explanation of the nature of God's wrath, and I think it's worth hearing. The relation of man to God being one of hostility, the corresponding relation of God to man is also described in one word, wrath. This is not an effective condition in God, corresponding to what we should call anger or rage. It is rather to be defined as the will of God, as opposed to evil. 
But though the anger of God is not to be regarded as bad temper, we must not blind ourselves to the fact that for Paul, for Paul it was a very serious thing. This inflexible resistance to God, of God to evil, his determination to extirpate it in every shape or form, means that man's condition as subject, slave, and instrument of sin is one that can only end in calamity for himself. The natural man is traveling as fast as his two feet will carry him to perdition. And so it is, I think it's helpful in the context of this passage to consider the outpouring of the wrath of God to be something rather permissive. Now, what does that mean? Well, God is handing people over to the logical outworking of their own sinful actions. He is not going to pull them back from the fire that they are approaching. He's going to let them go into it. And that is a terrible punishment in itself. God steps back and allows sinful men and women the full measure of their own depravity. What incredible foolishness that is. Now it is the godlessness and the unrighteousness of the Gentiles that causes God to pour out his wrath. Godlessness shows, first, a lack of respect for the deity. And unrighteousness shows a lack of respect for other people, and even for yourself. And so on the one hand, this means knowing about God, as in the light of nature, but nonetheless rejecting right worship of him and moving into idolatry. On the other, this means exchanging right and natural relations with one another for that which is unnatural. And I personally see an interesting parallel to the way Jesus Christ summarized the law. He summarized the law by saying, the first commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so Paul is describing a situation in which people are turning away from both of those commandments. They are suppressing the truth about God. And thus they are without excuse. There are a couple of uh, things I'd like to say about idolatry and the wrong kind of human relations and being turned over. Let me say this about idolatry. Actually, it's not something that I came up with, but it's a comment from one of the church fathers, Ambrosiaster. And he says about idolatry, So blinded were their hearts that they altered the majesty of the invisible God, which they knew from the things which he had made, not into men, but what is worse and is an inexcusable offense, into the image of men, so that the form of a corruptible man was called a god by them, i.e. a depiction of a man. Moreover, they did not dare honor living people with this name, but elevated the images of dead men to the glory of God. What great idiocy, what great stupidity, in that they knew they were calling them to their damnation, among whom an image was more powerful than the truth, and the dead were mightier than the living. Turning away from the living God, they preferred dead men 
among whose number they found themselves. And uh, that was true certainly at the time. By that time that Ambryoaster wrote, the Romans had moved into the example of, or the practice of emperor worship. And they not only worshipped the reigning emperor, but they also erected statues of previous emperors and honored them. They were very much into idolatry. Idolatry was all around at that time. And that was a great amount of futility. Um, But I I would um, not be too harsh in our estimation of the Romans. Don't we do that ourselves? Doesn't our modern culture do that in, in the way that we exalt certain body images? Or the physicality of people. I think that's often the case. That's why we have supermodels who can make millions and millions of dollars. Because they're almost worshipped in a way. Athletes can be worshipped in a way for their physical prowess as well. Certainly that is a danger and a temptation, I think, in every age. Not just ancient Rome. And so that's, that's bad. But it gets even worse. Because not only... Is there the idolatry of worshipping statues or creations that are, how should I say, there's an imitation of humans, but some people would go further and worship those things which are less than human. Images of birds, of creatures, of various things. Uh, It's quite extraordinary. It is such a violation of what the Lord God said, for example, to the Hebrews. Now, very interestingly, Ambryoaster castigates those who worship images not only of men but of animals. So let me return to him and hear. He gives a little bit of history, too, which is interesting. They so diminished the majesty and glory of God that they gave the title of God to the images of things which were small and tiny. For the Babylonians were the first to deify a notion of Bel, who was portrayed as a dead man, who supposedly had once been one of their kings. They also worshipped the dragon serpent, which Daniel, the man of God, killed, and of which they had an image. The Egyptians also worshipped a quadruped, which they called Apis, and which was in the form of a bull. Jeroboam copied this evil by setting up calves in Samaria, to which the Jews were expected to offer sacrifices. By doing this, those who knew the invisible God did not honor him. And again, we'll spend more time in addressing the problem of God's wrath poured out against the Jews, but you see at least some comment on that. Most of the culture of the world in ancient times was irretrievably um, idolatrous. And what a terrible thing it was when the chosen people of God, the Jews who were given the special revelation through the law and the prophets, when they too fell into idolatry. And if we look to our situation today, how many people in the Christian church fall into idolatry of various kinds? How well do we go along sometimes with what the culture calls us to worship as opposed to what God, who God, calls us to worship. And so these things have led God to allow the Gentiles to 
come to their own devices, to fall into their own pattern of sin. And again, I have a footnote here from, again, other church fathers who address this issue. And I think what they say is worth for us to listen. And again, I'm going to return to Ambrio Astor. He says, they were given over, not so that they could do what they did not want to do, but so that they could carry out exactly what they desired. And this is the goodness of God. And commenting on the same text, the great church father Chrysostom says, God gave them up simply means that he left them to their own concoctions. For as an army commander, if forced to retreat, abandons his deserting soldiers to the enemy, he does not thereby actively push them into the enemy camp, but passively withdraws his own protection over them. In the same way, God left those who were not ready to receive what comes from him, but were the first to desert him, even though he had fully done his part. And so another early church leader, Pseudo-Constantius, says, In saying that God gave them up to their own lusts, Paul is not claiming that God is the direct cause of this, but merely that since God did not bring vengeance on them after much long suffering and patience, he allowed them to act according to their own desires. He did this wanting them to be converted to repentance. And so on and so forth. And in a way, Paul, not Paul, but God in this reading is allowing people created in his image to act in a more animalistic way, to act as creatures who are not made in his image with all of the consequences that may entail. Now, Paul sets out the consequences of humans being left to their own devices without without God's grace and mercy. He lists many different sins, and you'll see um, especially uh, ones listed near the end of the cha- near the end of the passage. They are, let's see, unrighteous, evil, covetous, they're full of malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless and ruthless. And in these, this list of, of sins, I think very interestingly, they, com, they, they correspond to a refutation of the laws given in the Ten Commandments. Now, this law was given especially to the Jews, special revelation, and yet it's also a law, I think, that is written on our hearts. But whether it is written in our hearts or given to us by special revelation, nonetheless, the law is constantly contravened. And how terrifying it is that God would allow us to do that. Um, I also want to say a couple of words because I don't think anybody anybody contests that these things I just listed are bad things. That they are ungodly. That they are condemned. Paul condemns them. God condemns them. The Bible condemns them. Uh, The question of homosexuality, of course, is much more disputed. I'm not going to speak a lot about that. Uh, uh, I will say, you know, I believe the traditional teaching on the subject. One thing I would say, 
And I mean, it's a very compli- I mean, it's a complex subject nonetheless. There's some good excurses written about it in this commentary by Cruz and some other ones. Something I've noticed, and you may have heard this, I don't know. Um, and I've heard this argument in the church. We're told about the, com- the comparison between natural and unnatural that homosexuality may be natural because, after all, it is found in the animal kingdom. Which is true. I mean, there are examples of that. I'm not sure the the animals that do it, but nonetheless, there are some. And by that definition of naturalness, then it's okay. At least if you have the natural inclination to that to that uh, behavior. But I was thinking of something. It seems to me that that very explanation tends towards idolatry. Instead of it being natural according to the way men, uh, God designed men and women, instead of it being considered natural according to what God has revealed in his law, both the law of nature and the special revelation, the chems and the law to the Hebrews, people are instead looking at what animals do. Animals are not created in the image of God. They do not have the same attributes that we have been given as being made in his image. And so something more, I think, is expected of us than the argument that we can simply, well, act as the animals do in some areas. There are all sorts of things that animals do that I presume we would reject as civilized people. The black widow spider eats its mate, for example. I don't know that very many of us would engage in that kind of behavior either. And yes, I know it's not exactly the same thing. I don't want to make inflammatory comparisons, but nonetheless, it is an issue. And so it's a good thing for us to reflect, therefore, upon what is natural in the eyes of God. What is natural in the eyes of God? It is not always what is perhaps biologically or according to brain chemistry natural. God calls us perhaps to a different kind of understanding of what is natural according to his perfect will and plan. And sadly, God allows people's minds to become clouded and confused and futile when they persist in sin and idolatry. And so that is one reason why perhaps we're having the sort of disputes that we are today. There is, however, of course, good news to be had. Paul has written here, in this passage, he has written a grim passage, a passage about sin and about wrath and about futility and about what is natural and unnatural. But it's all in the context of the hope that the gospel gives us. And so let us remember that as we continue to work through this letter, what the actual meaning of the letter is. It is not to condemn, but it is to give that which leads to salvation. Now, will you pray with me? Almighty and loving God, we bless you for the gift of your word. We pray now for the grace to believe what we have heard and to live in ways that honor you above all. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.